Thank you, Michelle. It's this time of year that we make resolutions. It's New Year's, 2016. It's the time of year in which you resolve that you're finally going to work out. You're finally going to get an exercise routine. You're going to eat less this year. You're going to lose weight. You're going to learn Swahili. You're going to find a new job. You're going to quit smoking. You're going to drink less. You're going to get back to church. Here you are. Uh, You're going to find a mate. You resolve that this is the year you're going to pay off your credit cards. We resolve this time of year to do ourselves good. And yet, very quickly, our resolve can wane. God, your Father, if you are a Christian, God, your Father, is far more resolved to to do you good than you are to do yourself good. And his resolve, unlike ours, it doesn't weaken over time. And my hope is that this is the year that you get what Christianity is all about in in a level and in a way and in a depth in your heart that it's never reached before. For some of you, my prayer is that this is the year that Christianity, the gospel of Jesus, moves from your head to your heart and it captivates you in which uh, your life of doubts and uncertainty give way to moments of clarity in which you wonder, how could I have ever not believed? How could I have ever doubted? Where you see and sense and savor the goodness of God, not just his goodness abstractly, but his compassion toward you. It's not your resolve that can accomplish this. It's the resolve of God himself. It's the Lord's resolution to do you good, to make Jesus not just someone in your life somewhere, but to make Jesus the one, the only one, the everything, and by doing so to give you a joy and a freedom and a confidence and a hope that is wider than the galaxy itself. Friends, do you want this? Is this your longing for 2016, to know the Lord in a whole new way? If so, then you can follow along. We're going to look at the passage in which John the Baptist, the greatest prophet before Christ, doubts whether Jesus is in fact the one. There's a lot we can learn from this in your pew Bible. We're going to be on page 1512 and 1513. It's Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read the first 15 verses if you would follow along that we all might learn and might grow and might change. It's the word of Christ. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John What you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. 
What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. You will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, or more properly, the kingdom of heaven has been uh, uh, advancing through violence, and violent men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law, that's the Old Testament, prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. What do we see here in this encounter of John the Baptist and Jesus? First of all, we see that it is not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the direction of your faith. See, John the Baptist is, at this point in life, he is filled with doubt. He asks Jesus, are you the one or should I be waiting for someone else? And, and that is a very normal experience for a believer to have. Uh, doubt is, is evidence that you are taking something seriously. If you have doubts, it's because you understand that it, it actually matters if Jesus was who he said he was or if he was not. If he is the Son of God, that matters to you. Why? How do you know that? Because you, you fear that it may not be true. There is an uncertainty inside of you that says, what if this isn't true? Or what if it's not true for me? You know, there are two kinds of doubt. There's the sort of objective doubt of whether or not God is really exists, whether or not Jesus really was the Son of God. And then there's the kind of subjective doubt where you understand historically that all happened and that God has to be there, but you wonder whether he actually cares for you specifically. And these are very normal experiences. This is the greatest prophet before Jesus. The greatest man in history, Jesus says at that one point. The man who baptized the Son of God. I know what it's like to baptize somebody. I've baptized some of you, and it's an incredible honor. This was the man given the honor of baptizing the second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus. And he's filled with doubt. We all doubt at times. There are times where I'm like, okay, Jesus, I figured out 98% likelihood that everything you said is true and you're the Son of God, and yet there's still that nagging 2% fear inside of me. What if it's not true? What if a billion years from now, when all the stars will have gone out and the galaxies will have fade, none of us are still around and there's no one there to know we ever existed? What if there is no God? What if life really is truly meaningless and there is no right and there is no wrong and there's no way things ought to be. What if there is no hope and there is no future and death is the end and you won't know that you died and you won't be at your funeral? And I can tell you, that one or two percent can scream really, really loudly. And especially when you're in a situation 
like John the Baptist. 98% is beyond a reasonable doubt. But it doesn't mean that there's not a doubt, perhaps unreasonable, that is still there. Every Christian leader in history has described their struggle with doubt. Doubt is evidence that you're taking it seriously because you're realizing that if it's not true, your entire life and hope crumbles beneath you. Now, why would John be doubting at this particular point in his life and ministry? Well, when do you face your biggest doubts? When do you question whether God loves you? Look at what's going on in John's life. John's life and ministry has just crumbled beneath him. John was the greatest of the prophets. Jesus asked the crowd, whose crowd? The crowd that's following Jesus. He says, what did you all go out in the desert to see? A great king, a breezed reed, no, a great prophet. Now, what's the irony there? Where's that crowd now? They were following John the Baptist, and now John the Baptist is alone. John the Baptist has lost his following. He's the one who said, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. And that's exactly what has now happened. John was the one who challenged the the idolatrous rebellion of King Herod Antipas for stealing his brother's wife. He was the one who rebuked the priestly and aristocratic classes and called Uh, uh, and called out against their injustice and their corruption. He's the one who spoke for the weak, for the sinners, for the poor, for the abandoned. He was the one who had massive crowds around him, and King Herod couldn't do a thing about it because, because John was too popular. He was surrounded by the rubble. He was surrounded by the crowds. He was so popular. There's nothing the king could do to touch a hair on John's head until... Jesus showed up, and everybody's left John to follow Jesus, just as John told them they would have to do, and now John has been arrested. John is now in jail. John is now awaiting his execution at the hands of King Herod Antipas. He's alone. You can still visit the Roman prison at Makarasand and see the iron hooks on which the Romans hung their prisoners a John who had been at the pinnacle of his career, a change agent, a voice of truth, and in the face of injustice is now alone. And he's abandoned, and he's chained, and he is forgotten. Now he's waiting. He knows he's going to die, and his life is flashing before him. And John wants to know from Jesus himself, Jesus, are you the one? Was this really worth it? Have I given my life for something that's actually true? And where did he turn in the midst of his doubt? But John was honest about his doubts. He didn't stuff them. He didn't pray them away. He didn't throw them on the back of his devotions. He didn't beat himself up. He took his doubts directly to Jesus. Not as a blind leap of faith. Not as a, I'm just going to have to trust you, Jesus, but he takes them to Jesus very intentionally and owns them and admits them. He doesn't turn off his mind. In fact, what Jesus then does to speak to John's doubts is Jesus then starts pointing John where? He points him to the evidence. What do you see, John? There are people who are dead who are now alive. There are people who are blind who can now see. There are people who were lame who are now walking. There are people who are deaf who can now hear. There are people who are mute who are now talking. 
and the good news is being preached to the poor. You know, John is saying, my faith is weak, but at the end of the day, where is John's faith? And what object? What is the direction of John's faith? Uh, is John's faith strong or is it weak? At this point, it is the weakest it has ever been in his life. But it doesn't matter about the strength of your faith. What matters is the direction. And what is the direction of his faith? He's saying, Jesus, my faith in you is weak, but I'm bringing it to you because the direction of my faith is in you. Jesus, I'm placing all my eggs in your basket. You're all I have. My hope is in you. Jesus, I hope you weren't lying. I hope there's not someone else. I hope you're the one. It's an illustration we use a lot around here. Keith used it a few weeks ago. I've used it several times, uh, and it's the, the illustration of the two rock climbers. You know, two rock climbers have climbed to the top of, you know, a great peak, you know, like Mount Adams, highest point in Illinois, or, or maybe K2, probably a better option, because it's actually got cliffs, because Mount Adams, I mean, you can see the arch, but that's about it. Um, you know, I mean, it's Paramarquette. That's, that's as high as they get. Uh, it's not a big... Anyway, so you're at the top of a great mountain. You're sitting two-thirds of the way up K2, and the storm is coming. You know you've just got a couple hours to get back down to base camp, or you're going to die, and, and you get there, and it's getting dark, and you don't remember how you got up there, and the two rock climbers are looking at the two various paths down. Which way do we go? Which rock is actually going to get us down there? And the one guy, his faith is weak. He's, he's, he's looking at it. He's like, oh, I don't know. I think it, it could be that one. I may be, but I think it's this one. I, I'm pretty sure I think this is the one. I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't know. We're all going to die. It's going to be terrible, but I think it's this one. And the other guy's like, you're an idiot. It's this one. I know it's this one. I have absolute certainty. I am an expert rock climber. I know this rock. It's the one we came up on. We do this one. I have no doubt this is the rock. And so they just say, fine, on the count of three, we're just going to try it. And they go one, they go two, they go three. The guy over here, he steps down onto his rock, and the guy over here steps onto his, and the rock gives out, and he falls 3,000 feet to his death. Now, which one of them had the stronger faith? The guy over here had much stronger faith. But it doesn't matter how strong your faith is. The point here is that what matters is not the strength of your faith, but the direction. This guy had the right rock, and it got him safely down to, to, to freedom. This guy, strong faith, but in the wrong direction. He had the wrong rock. And John's faith at this point, it's weak. It's struggling. He's, he's filled with doubt, but his faith is in Jesus, the rock. Uh, it's like when you're, John, let's say you're on top of your your. Maybe it rained a whole lot a couple weeks ago, and you had some leaks, and so you're up on top of your roof. Not my roof, because my roof is a 17-story high-rise, and, and that, I wouldn't fall off of that uh, if I had the choice. But l- imagine you're on your roof, you're looking around, trying to figure out why it was leaking, trying to find the damage so you can get some estimate how much it's actually going to cost you. And, and you slip, and you lose your footing, and you fall, and you're sliding down your roof, and you see a tree branch. As you're going off the edge, you see a tree branch, and you reach out with one arm, and you grab it. And you hold on to it, and it saves your life, or at least it saves your back. Um, Now, here's the question. Did the strength of your faith in that branch get you to safety? No, you didn't have much faith in that branch. It was the only option you had. You were falling off your roof. It was 30 feet down. You were going to crack your back or your head open. You were going to be in serious pain, and the only thing you saw that you might grab onto was that branch. What saved you? 
is not the strength of your faith in the branch. What saved you is the strength of the branch. That's where John's looking. He's looking to the branch. He's looking to the rock. His faith is weak, but it's in the right direction. Now, second point, that direction requires that we ask the right question. What question does John not ask at this point? What he doesn't ask is, Jesus, if you're the one, then get me out of jail. He's not saying, Jesus, if you're the one, if you're the Son of God, if you're true, then, then keep me from getting my head cut off by Herod. Uh, you see, that's the kind of thing that we often find ourselves doing. Jesus, if you're real, then give me what I need. Because there's something else that I really need. Uh, it's the, the question that the thief on the cross asked Jesus. Hey, if you're the Son of God, then get us down from here. Save yourself first. Um, very often we think that, and it shows us uh, very often what we're really living for is not God, but that thing that we think that he has to give us in order for us to have security. Um, but he's not asking that question. He's not saying, gosh, I could really use God right now. No, what's the question John is asking? He's asking Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Lord? Are you the healer? Are you the deliverer foretold of by the prophets? Because Jesus, if you are the one, then I can suffer. If you're the one, then I can die. See, it's the only question John could ask that doesn't have any follow-up questions. It's not, if you're the one, then do this. It's just, are you the one? Because if you're the one, then, then it all makes sense. Then you're the boss. If you're the one, then you're in charge. You created me. You sustain me. You're my satisfaction. You're the one thing that I have to have. And if you're the one, then prison is okay. And dying, though it was never your design in the beginning, it's a curse of the fall, dying is going to be okay if you're the one, then I know you are wisdom itself and your plan is better than my plan and your glory is more glorious than my glory and it's more treasured and you're the one who's going to redeem all of this suffering and pain. Ultimately, somehow, I don't know how, but if you're the one, then I'm going to let you write my story because you're the one. It's the only question without any fine print, without any stipulations, without any qualifications or reservations. Now, what does that require of us? To ask that question, you know, to say he's the one is more than just cognitive. It's saying that you are staking your whole identity on Jesus. You're staking your marriage on him and your relationships and your money and your career on Jesus. Your aspirations of life are all staked on him. It means you've staked your reputation and your health and your future. You've staked your own eternity and that of your children on Jesus. Everything that matters to you is resting on him and on that conviction and that belief that he is the one. Got a uh, picture here of uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Is there anybody up there? I don't know. Do we have, uh, can we get a, yeah, this guy. Malcolm Gladwell is a, a Canadian journalist um, since 1996. He's been a, a staff writer uh, for The New Yorker. He's an author of, of numerous best-selling books, including Tipping Point and Outliers and uh, a number of years back, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. Uh, Gladwell was researching a new book a couple years back, and he went to see a woman in Winnipeg by the name of Wilma Dirksen. I think we've got another photo, if we could get that next one. This is Wilma Dirksen. 30 years ago, 
Wilma's teenage daughter, Candace, had disappeared on her way home from school. The city had launched the largest manhunt in its history, and after one week, Candace's body was found in a hut a quarter of a mile from the Dirksons' house, and her hands and her feet had been bound. Wilma and her husband, Cliff, were called into the local police station and told the news. And Candace's funeral was the next day, followed by a news conference. And virtually every news outlet in the province was there because Candace's disappearance had gripped the whole city. And one reporter asked the Dirksons, how do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? Cliff answered first, we would like to know who this person or persons are so that we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. And then Wilma went next. Our main concern was to find Candace, and we found her. I can't say at this point that I forgive this person, but the stress was on the phrase at this point. She continued, We've all done something dreadful in our lives, or have at least felt the urge to do so. Gladwell writes, I wanted to know where the Dirksons found the strength to say those kinds of things. A predator had kidnapped and murdered their daughter, and Cliff Dirksen could talk about sharing his love with the killer And Wilma could stand up and say that we've all done something dreadful in our lives, or at least felt the urge to. Where do two people find the power to forgive in a moment like that? He says, for the first year of my research, I collected examples of paradoxes, where our intuitions about what an advantage or disadvantage are turn to be upside down. And why are so many successful entrepreneurs dyslexic? Why did so many American presidents and British prime ministers lose a parent as a child? Is it possible that some of the things we hold dear in education, like small classes and prestigious schools, can do as much harm as good? I read studies, and I talked to social scientists, and I buried myself in the library and thought I knew the kind of book I wanted to write, and then I met Wilma Dirksen. The Dirksons, he says, live in a small bungalow in a modest neighborhood not far from downtown Winnipeg. Wilma Dirksen and I sat in her backyard. I think some part of me expected her to be saintly or heroic, and she was neither. She spoke simply and quietly. She was a Mennonite, she explained, and her family, like many Mennonites, had come from Russia, where those of their faith had suffered terrible persecution before fleeing to Canada. And the Mennonite response to persecution was to take Jesus' instructions on forgiveness very seriously. He says, the whole Mennonite philosophy, or she said, the whole Mennonite philosophy is, what we, is that we forgive and we move on. Uh, Dirk, uh, uh, and so he said, it, it had not always been easy. It took more than 20 years for the police in Winnipeg to track down Candace's killer. In the beginning, Wilma's husband, Cliff, had been considered by some in the police force to be a suspect. The weight of that suspicion fell heavily on this family, and Wilma told me that she had wrestled with her anger and desire for retribution. These weren't heroes or or special saints, 
but something in their tradition and something in their faith made it possible for the Dirksons to do something heroic and saintly. He goes on, I was raised in a Christian home in southwest Ontario. My parents took time every morning reading their Bible and praying. Both of my brothers are devout Christians. My sister-in-law is a Mennonite pastor. I've had a different experience from the rest of my family. I was only I was the only one to move away from Canada, and I was the only one to move away from the church. He says, once I moved to New York, I stopped attending any kind of religious fellowship. I've often wondered why it happened that way. Why had I wandered off the path taken by the rest of my family? He said, what I understand now is that I was one of those people who didn't appreciate the weapons of the Spirit. I've always been someone attracted to the quantifiable and the physical. I've always believed in God. I have grasped the logic of Christian faith. What I've had a hard time seeing is God's power. I put that sentence in the past tense because something happened to me when I sat in Wilma Dirksen's garden. It's one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their faith, but it's quite another to meet an otherwise very ordinary lady in the backyard of her very ordinary house who's managed to do something utterly extraordinary. Their daughter was murdered, and the first thing the Dirksons did was to stand up at a press conference and talk about the path to forgiveness. We would like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. He writes, maybe we have difficulty seeing the weapons of the Spirit because we don't know where to look or because we're distracted by the louder claims of material advantage. But I've seen them now, and I will never be the same. There's a man who's beginning to ask the right question. Is Jesus the one? We've talked about faith. It's not the power or strength of your faith, but the direction of your faith. And it requires you to ask the right question. Well, the last question is this. Why is it that John was so confused? That's good. We've got enough of that. Thanks. Uh, she can leave. Thank you. Uh, it's a great lady. Why was John confused? John was not missing something. He was seeing something that no one else was seeing. When Jesus tells John, look at the evidence, look at what you see, he was referencing Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. It's the passage that Michelle read earlier. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And it goes on. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. John knows what Isaiah said. John knows what it means when the one from God comes. It means, yes, the the, the blind will receive sight. It means the mute will be able to speak. The lame will be able to leap for joy. And what? And the vengeance of God will come and God himself will save you. John's asking, where is the vengeance 
I'm sitting here in jail. I'm locked away. I'm going to be put to death. And I'm seeing, I, I got it. I, I see the evidence. All these things, it's all true. But where's the vengeance? And this is where Jesus answers. And he says, and the English Standard Version is better, I think, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus is preparing them. The violence is going to be inflicted not on all of you, but on me. It's already happening. It's why John the Baptist is suffering. It's going to happen throughout history. The blood of the martyrs will be the seed of the church, as Tertullian said back in the early church, uh, that, that all of this violence is going to come against the kingdom of God. That is the vengeance. But Jesus is already pre- preparing them, already hinting that he will ultimately be the one who will absorb the bulk of that violence Indeed, the very wrath of God, the vengeance of God against sin. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to absorb your sin and my sin into himself, and he will absorb the vengeance of God so that there is no more anger toward you. There is no more judgment toward you. There is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of heaven. Once your sins have been atoned for, they are forgiven fully and finally and forever. Jesus is saying the violence is going to come against the kingdom of heaven. But what is the kingdom of heaven? But the king himself, king of heaven himself, will absorb the vengeance. The violence will send him to the cross. It's what he calls the gospel, the good news, that you have a savior and it is finished. When we join in that suffering, in many ways it crystallizes for the world what the real question is. If Christians are willing to suffer, if Christians are willing to face this same violence for Jesus, if they're willing even to die for Jesus, then what is it about Jesus that makes him worth all of that? To ask the right question. If you ask it, friends, Jesus, are you the one? Then my prayer is that Jesus answers you and captures your heart as you consider the degree that God goes to to save us, to help us see that he's the one. Let that be your resolution, and may that be God's resolution for you. Got one last story here. Got one more slide. This is Kirsten Powers. Um, Some of you may know her. She's a contributor for USA Today. She's a columnist for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. But most importantly, she is the Democratic commentator on the Fox News Network, which I would imagine would be like being the Israeli commentator on Al Jazeera. Um, A couple of years ago, Kirsten Powers wrote an article in Christianity Today. I'm going to read some of what she wrote. She says, just seven years ago, if someone had told me that I'd be writing for Christianity Today magazine about how I came to believe in God, I would have laughed out loud. If there was one thing in which I was completely secure, it was that I would never adhere to any religion, especially to Christianity, which I held in particular contempt. I grew up in the Episcopal Church in Alaska, but my belief was superficial and it was flimsy. It was borrowed from my archaeologist father, who was so brilliant he taught himself to speak and read Russian, 
when I encountered doubt, I would fall back on the fact that, well, he believed. Leaning on my father's faith got me through, got me through high school. But she writes, college, in college it wasn't enough, especially because as I grew older, my dad began to confide in me his own doubts, and what little faith I couldn't what little faith I had couldn't withstand that revelation. And so from my early 20s on, I would waver between atheism and agnosticism, never coming close to considering that God could actually be real. It says, after college, I worked as an appointee in the Clinton administration from 1992 to 1998. The White House surrounded me with intellectual people who, if they had any deep faith in God, they never expressed it. And later, when I moved to New York, where I worked in democratic politics, my world became aggressively secular. Everyone I knew was politically left-leaning. My group of friends was overwhelmingly atheist. I sometimes hear Christians talk about how terrible life must be for atheists, but our lives were not terrible. Life actually seemed pretty wonderful, filled with opportunity and good conversation and privilege. I know now that it was not as wonderful as it could have been, but you don't know what you don't know. How could I have missed something I didn't think existed? To the extent that I encountered Christians, it was in the news cycle, and inevitably they were saying something about gay people or feminists. I didn't feel like I was missing much. So when I began dating a man who was into Jesus, I was not looking for God. In fact, the week before I met him, a friend had asked me if I had any real deal-breakers in dating, and my response was, just nobody who is religious. A few months into our relationship, my boyfriend called to say he had something important to talk to me about. I remember exactly where I was sitting in my West Village apartment when he said, do you believe Jesus is your Savior? My stomach sank. I started to panic. Oh, no, was my first thought. He's crazy. When I answered no, he asked, do you think you could ever believe it? He explained that he was at a point in his life when he wanted to get married, and he felt like I could be that person, but he couldn't marry a non-Christian. I said I didn't want to mislead him, that I would never believe in Jesus. Then he said the magic words for us liberals. Do you think you could keep an open mind about it? Well, of course. I'm very open-minded. Even though I wasn't at all, I derided Christians as anti-intellectual bigots who were too weak to face the reality that there is no rhyme or reason in the world. I had found this man's church attendance an oddity to overlook, not a point in his favor. As he talked, I grew conflicted. On the one hand, I was creeped out. On the other hand, I had enormous respect for him. He is smart, educated, intellectually curious. I remember thinking, what if this is true? And I'm not even willing to consider it. A few weeks later, I went to church with him. I was so clueless about Christianity that I didn't know that some Presbyterians were evangelicals. And so when we arrived at the Upper East Side service of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, I was shocked and repelled by what I saw. I was used to the high church liturgy of my youth. We were meeting in an auditorium with a band playing what I later learned was called praise music. I thought, how am I going to tell him that I can never, ever come back here again? But then the pastor preached, and I was fascinated. I had never heard a pastor talk about the things he did. Tim Keller's sermon was intellectually rigorous, 
weaving in art and history and philosophy. I decided to come back to hear him again. Soon, hearing Keller speak on Sunday became the highlight of my week. I thought of it as just an interesting lecture, not really church. I just tolerated the rest of it in order to hear him. Uh, Any person who's familiar with Keller's preaching knows that he usually brings Jesus in at the end of the sermon to tile his points together. That's a really good idea. Um, (laughs) You know where I got it. But for the first few months, she writes, I left feeling frustrated. Why did he have to ruin a perfectly good talk with this Jesus nonsense? Each week, Keller made the case for Christianity. He also made the case against atheism and agnosticism. He expertly exposed the intellectual weaknesses of a purely secular worldview. I came to realize that even if Christianity wasn't the real thing, neither was atheism. I began to read the Bible. My boyfriend would pray with me for God to reveal himself to me. After about eight months of going to hear Keller, I concluded that the weight of evidence was on the side of Christianity. But I didn't feel any connection to God at all, and frankly, I was fine with that. I continued to think that that people who talked about hearing from God or experiencing God were either delusional or lying, and in my most generous moments, I allowed that they were just imagining things that made them feel good. Then one night in 2006, on a trip to Taiwan, I woke up in what felt like a strange cross between a dream and reality, and Jesus came to me and said, Here I am. It felt so real. I didn't know what to make of it. I called my boyfriend, but before I had time to tell him about it, he told me that he had been praying the night before and felt like we were supposed to break up. And so we did. And honestly, while I was upset, I was more traumatized by Jesus visiting me. I tried to write off the experience as misfiring synapses, but I couldn't shake it. When I returned to New York a few days later, I was lost. I suddenly felt God everywhere, and it was terrifying me. More important, it was unwelcome. It felt like an invasion. I started to fear that I was going crazy. I didn't know what to do. So I spoke with writer Eric Metoxas, whom I had met through my boyfriend and who had talked with me quite a bit about God. He said, you need to be in a Bible study, and Kathy Keller's Bible study is the one you need to be in. I didn't like the sound of that, but I was desperate. My whole world was imploding. How was I going to tell my family or my friends about what had happened? Nobody would understand. I didn't understand. It says a lot about my family uh, in that one of the most pressing concerns they had was that Christians would try to turn me into a Republican. That didn't happen. She says, I remember walking into the Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, it's true. It's all completely true. The world looked entirely different, like a veil had been lifted off of it. I had not an iota of doubt. I was filled with indescribable joy. The horror of the prospect 
of being a devout Christian crept back in almost immediately. I spent the next few months doing my best to wrestle away from God, but it was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there he was. Slowly there was less fear and more joy, she says. The hound of heaven had pursued me. The hound of heaven had caught me whether I liked it or not. Jesus, are you the one? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see what Kirsten Powers was given eyes to see, to see you everywhere as you are, to savor you, to experience you, to know you and be known by you. Lord, my prayer for everyone in this building today is that this would be the year in which they see Jesus in a way they've never seen him before. Lord, show yourself as you are able. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The Lord be with you.